do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're going to listen to a conversation with Peter Donovan. And this episode is completely about soil, soil health, carbon, water cycles, and much more. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why am I focused on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! Welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kun Hossein, your host. Today I'm talking to Peter Donovan. Peter has hands-on experience with land and stock management, holistic management, community development and consensus building and much more. He completed his holistic management educator course in 1997 but chose not to pursue certification. He lives in Eastern Oregon, USA. And Peter just published a few days ago on his website recognizing the soil carbon spawns. Plus, he's a good friend of Judith Swartz who I interviewed last year. So we have a lot to discuss, so let's start and dive in. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. To start with... A personal question I always love to ask, what brings you to the space um, when also because you have a long career already in the space and, and why soil and why soil carbon and sponge? Well, in the 1970s, I spent a lot of time herding livestock, cattle and sheep. And when I first um, met Alan Savory, I was very struck by his approach to decision making. And this would have been in the early 1990s. And... That changed. That encounter changed my life in a lot of ways. Uh, I went through the educator course with Alan Savory for holistic management. And what he was concentrating on then, as he still does, is the decision framework, looking at holes rather than trying to manage or manage parts or treat symptoms. And this seems to me very radically different from the sort of traditional decision-making that we've probably had for thousands of years. And that's either toward an objective or problem-solving or in opposition to existing problem-solving strategies. For example, the environmental movement, as it's currently mostly practiced, is also a parts strategy, I believe. And In my holistic management training, I became extremely interested in the way the ecosystem functioned or how we understood that and 
I became very interested in particularly the carbon cycle. And this was about the time that the climate issue was coming to the forefront and in the early 2000s. In 2007, with a friend, I started the Soil Carbon Coalition, which was a nonprofit. And the first major project was figuring out how to measure change in soil carbon. And this was not as the conversation then was and perhaps still is. It's not about offsets or carbon credits, but it was about to see what was possible and to try to connect agency, our ability to influence things, the landowner's ability to influence things, with their intention regarding the carbon cycle and in particular, the value of soil carbon in holding water and promoting soil life and resilience and all those sorts of things. So my passion has been the carbon cycle, which has a tremendous influence on water cycling. And a lot of people think that because our coalition is has the word carbon in it, we're about carbon offsets or carbon trading, and that's not true. Carbon is a placeholder, if you will, for solar energy flow into biological systems. And even though the energy flow into the actual carbon cycle is pretty minuscule, less than a quarter watt per square meter, it has a tremendous influence on water cycling, which is about 80 watts per square meter on average. So hundreds of times larger force, but carbon cycling, because it's chemical, is transformation. So when you started, you, you mentioned measurement as one of the first entry points. Did that mean that there wasn't um, too much being done in that space or it was very difficult for the ranchers like you or others you, you were working with to, to actually measure that? I, I've, I mean, I think we're still in that discussion, like also for the compensation people, but also for, for all the agriculture people that want to that see that as a, as a key point in, in all of their systems. Is, is it still difficult? Was it very difficult then? Well, what has been your, your work on that? Well, measurement of carbon is, is, a, is a complex, measurement of soil carbon is a complex subject because there's many different purposes that people bring to that. And I think it's important to distinguish those and to be aware of them. Uh, one of the purposes in the early 2000s and with the Chicago Climate Exchange, for example, in the U.S., and, and my perspective is mainly North America. I should, I should emphasize that. The perspective was we, we can measure carbon and then trade offsets. And that's a, that's a difficult proposition because there's so much variability in space and time in soils, for example. And early on, when we started the Soil Carbon Coalition in 2007, I focused on measuring change over time. And that is, a, again, a difficult proposition at a landscape scale. But at a point scale, it's not too bad. And most of the um, academic research and measurements were one time only. It's routine in institutional research to substitute space for time, often because of the limited timeline of grant funding. So a researcher will go to Brazil, for example, and measure carbon in a in a rainforest and then across in the same soil type perhaps 
a place that was cleared 10 years ago and maybe a place that was cleared 40 years ago and make what is known as a chrono sequence or what I call a sort of a fence line comparison. And I focused very early on on creating baseline sampling locations that could be accurately and repeatably remeasured over time. Because that's the, that's the key, to repeat it and see what changed and what, what influence you might or, or your practices might have had, if I understand correctly. Correct. And that's, that can be done at a point scale, but at, to get a statistically you know, valid measurement of a thousand hectares in a variable landscape is a, is a tough one. And that's why the carbon offset conversation went from measurement to modeling pretty quickly. Yeah, because it's extremely difficult to, to prove that and, and to, to keep it there. And, and if we then, so you're starting to measure, if we then move to management, I mean, I've discussed soil carbon many, many times in this podcast, but still, I think for, for many, it's relatively new, the fact that soil actually holds carbon. Could you give a very brief but clear in, in introduction to the ones that are thinking, ah, soil and carbon, that's a new concept? how that works and why it's so important, the connection with water and not necessarily the compensation discussion that many are having at the moment. Well, as, as Selman Waksman, the microbiologist who won the Nobel Prize for discovering streptomycin in 1952, he wrote a book called Humus in 1936. So this is not, not exactly new information. He said that humus and a lot of people, that's, that's a high carbon bunch of compounds is the principal storehouse of solar energy on the surface of the earth. And I define soil carbon pretty loosely as the living, the dead, and the very dead. And living organisms, biomass, tissue is generally around half carbon by dry weight. And carbon compounds are all of our carbohydrates, our proteins, um, everything that makes up living creatures is a, has a tremendous fraction of carbon in it. It's, the, it's one of the key molecules because of its key atoms because its ability to bond in lots of different ways and to create. It's the skeleton of, this chemical skeleton, if you will, of life. Of life as we know it. Yeah, yeah. and... The mineral, the mineral particles of soil, sand, silt, and clay, can be bound together with sticky glues and cements. And these are high-carbon molecules, usually. And all kingdoms of life produce sticky slimes and glues. And plants exude sugars, carbohydrates through their roots, and micro, various microbes take up these this um, food and process it into incredible number of compounds and some of them are sticky slimes and films that stick together these mineral particles and that creates pore space um, a porous matrix if you will that can that in turn provides enormous habitats for very tiny microbes and bacteria and fungi provides extraordinary ability for plant roots to penetrate and it increases nutrient availability when you have a porous soil and it allows for oxygen, carbon dioxide, the various soil gases to exist 
and in other words, it, it's a it's a it's a living environment. The the plants photosynthesizing create living soil, and without that without that um, pore structure, without those slimes and glues that hold the soil aggregates together, our water cycling would wash whatever soils we had into the bottom of the sea in a blink of geologic time. Which is what's happening now, right? With every flood, with every... You see this dark water basically flushing soil away. Well, yes. Um, but soil is also continuously being formed by by plants and microbes. And, you know, Hutton discovered this in the late 1700s. He said that, you know, both soils and rocks are part of a cycle. They're continually being destroyed and continually being created. And, of course, the differential rates are pretty important for human civilization because the porous soil aggregate, water-holding, fertility-enhancing, is the fundamental infrastructure that protects our infrastructure of steel, asphalt, and concrete, our economies, our civilizations. Without, without the soil aggregate, we're, we're totally lost. We can't feed ourselves. We can't protect ourselves. And, and what's the current state of the soil? Very broadly, let's, let's look at U.S., sorry. Let's, uh, let's focus it a bit more. What, what would you say, are we in, in deep problems, or, and, and is there a way out, or are we okay in terms of soil management? Well, I think there are deep problems. Um, there's also a lot of opportunity. Uh, you know, this is, this is a troublesome area to, to report data numbers um, because much depends on your methods and measurement, and not, not all soils are being measured, of course. And, but the estimates of soil loss are pretty high for the U.S., especially our Midwest and some other areas. And I do think, I do think there's ways out, but I, I think the, the important focus is to, if we can figure out a way to shift from managing against what we don't want to taking the opportunity of managing for, for what we need, and that's deep water holding topsoil. And, and what would be an example on, on what you've seen and how to get there? Well, what's... What is one of those opportunities um, to to create this rich, full of life soil that can hold so much more water than than in the neighboring soil that's flushing away? I've measured several cases of I've measured several cases of very very rapid soil carbon gain in gra on grazing lands on pastures that are being well managed um, with planned holistic grazing, I would say. In other words, fairly high stock density for a limited time and good recovery periods for the plants and the grasses that grow there. And these are perennial systems. They're not annual systems. I've not been able to record as high a gain in annual systems such as cropland or grasses, but I haven't done a lot of work in annual systems. There are quite a few other reports of change in perennial systems and some annual systems. And I think the potential is 
is good. The practices probably vary quite a bit, um, and how they're how they're applied. I would love for people to get away from the idea that practices can be clearly defined and categorized, because I don't believe they can. And that's one of the one of the reasons we we have tended to focus on results, even with things like infiltration or soil carbon, rather than practices, because in as it turns out, everybody does them differently. And, you know, to get a definition of no-till, for example, is, is pretty difficult that, that applies to a broad enough sector. Do you want to learn how to invest, or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course, or in the show notes description below. So you're looking more at measuring infiltration rates and soil carbon Right. As a set, regardless of the management, so you can actually compare them because it's very difficult to find 10 or 20 farmers that are doing exactly the same system in different places. Exactly. And the measurements I I do are by invitation and they're pretty much always by people who intend to increase their soil health and productivity. And so it's not a, it's not a, random sample if you will it's it's about possibility and intent and people who think they have the agency the ability to influence that and obviously take some courage too because this is a space when failure is possible you know you can you can say well i intend to increase soil carbon and i fail or at least i did during this particular time period or it didn't come out as I hoped or expected or I've seen at other places, etc. Exactly. So going from the measurement, what are you working on uh, right now? What, 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 is, what is the main focus of your, your current work? Well, I've had to retire somewhat from the direct measurement because of need to care for some family members. But... I'm working right now on, and I have been for the last couple of years, on platforms and systems that will enable more people to participate in measuring and mapping what I call the most powerful planetary force, which is the carbon cycle, the circle of life, and its intersection with the water cycle. And we have a web app now that's about to, we're about to start using it a lot more. I've used it a lot. Um, it's, it's a web app called Atlas of Biological Work or atlasbiowork.com for short. And still working on it, but it works fairly well for data entry right now. And it's a very flexible um, system, unlike a lot of institutional research, which is always an insider game. It tends to have highly structured data and even data that's not not um, visible or transparent or open. And so the design here is quite different because we're wanting 
to be more participatory. I can't cover the, the whole world by myself, obviously. And so the, the, the focus here is making it possible for others to recognize the power and the possibility of the circle of life of the soil carbon sponge. And in general, institutional research is not doing this. Consultants are not doing this. Agencies are not doing this. And I think if we're going to learn as landowners, as conservation districts, as a society, how to manage carbon and water cycling, we need feedback. Yeah, it all starts with measurements. These are very complex systems. Um, I'm not pretending that, that soil carbon is the only thing that you should measure or the best thing that you should measure. I've been to quite a few meetings where that's been the objective or the agenda. What's the best kind of measurement to take? And my answer is usually something like the best kind is one that's repeated and that reflects somehow on function. And repeatability, I think, has four, at least four ingredients. You need to be very careful about location. You need to have practical and affordable methods and tools. You need to have open data. And you need to have people able and willing to make the observations and to record the data in an open, transparent way. And that those, those characteristics have guided the design of, of the platforms we're working on. And that those also include some learning materials inquiry-based. And I might describe again the thrust of this work as I think we can ask better questions. And I also think we can enlist or engage more people in asking and in answering those questions. It cannot be just an insider game. We need as a society, as landowners, as conservation districts, as governments, municipal, local, national, we need to understand what we're dealing with in terms of the circle of life. We need to recognize it, not just species, not just practices, not just problems, but the opportunity of working with the most powerful planetary force. And, and what would be a, a bad question or, let's say, a question that can be improved around, let's say, a perennial system or, or a landowner that would like to switch to that what would be a bad question? What would be a good question to give an example? Well, I can give several examples. Um, a good question would be, how can I regenerate my soils? A bad question would be, or an easier question, let's put it this way, would be, what practices are usually associated with regenerating soils in my area and which of them appeal to me? Or what species should I plant? Or a good question would be, how might I increase profitability and resilience on this 100 acres of my farm? A bad question might be, an easier question, how much nitrogen fertilizer should I order? Or what species should I plant? Which sensor or drone to buy? Right. Or a good question might be, for example, how can we address climate change? 
what I would consider a bad or but a much easier question is how can we create a market for carbon offsets? So if we stay with that good question, it's a huge topic which can probably we can fill another complete podcast. Um, but reading the carbon sponge, what would be your advice to focus on if you would be speaking in a in a theater full of investors that are impact investors that are ready to, to put their money into soil they've learned about it they've heard about it but they haven't done anything yet looking at climate change they all recognize that's that's the one of the big topics soil is a hugely interesting thing where where to start where to look at um if you would be able to give them some some tools to start some directions well for investors i think there's um a lot of ideas that you should use the latest greatest regenerative practices, for example. But I would start somewhat earlier. And the first thing would be land tenure and commitment. In other words, I don't think you can apply regenerative agriculture, whatever that exactly might mean, programmatically. What would that mean programmatically? Um, you know, we're, we're going to do it on 3,000 acres and we're going to do it in these steps. And these are, you know, prepackaged tools or applications or management. And we're just going to apply them. And I, I don't think you can manage land well that way. And, but that's the way people who are farming sometimes 30 or 40,000 acres do. They have a recipe. And I don't, I don't think that programmatic type of approach is, I think it's a contradiction in terms almost. Um, we're really talking about something beyond practices. And as an analogy, um, think of trying to create a social program that would make people more creative responsible and behave with greater integrity. I think that's pretty much analogous to what we're trying to do when we talk about scaling up regenerative agriculture or increasing the pace of it or something like that. And those kinds of programs, I think, can quickly turn wrong and unprofitable. I think the the key part for investment is to look at tenure and commitment look at organic growth, and by that I mean um, not necessarily certified organic, but how can you learn to do what you need to do as you go along and plan for succession. This is a long, long horizon kind of business. And then after all those things have been looked at, then look at the latest, greatest regenerative practices. But they're not the first thing. You need to get the conditions right first. Yes. Because, you know, what are your enabling conditions? I've seen, I've seen people plunge into, we want to do the latest, greatest practices, but there, there, there isn't the support for that. There isn't the organic growth. There isn't the tenure. There isn't the commitment. And 
I don't think you can necessarily do this with a one or two year lease. Do you see that as one of the main issues as well, like the focus on short term, either because of the leases or because of the cash flows, but the, the focus on short term and by definition, building living systems, in this case, soil and water cycles is a long term game. So those two like clash almost by definition. Yes, I think that's right. And it's it's a long term game gain. And if you need uh, a high return on investment or you're not very patient as an investor, um, these these are, of course, issues. Yeah, don't even start. And I would also point out maybe this is maybe this doesn't come under your definition of investment, but people think a lot about policy and we talk a lot about policy and climate policy and certifications and those kinds of things. But I think the, the low-hanging fruit in policy work is perhaps to remove the barriers and disincentives, which are pretty strong in a lot of places. And in some cases, I think this can be done with the right kind of easements or conservation easements. But you have to be careful there because if the future of agriculture means more people on the land, which I believe it does, um, prohibiting you know, subdivisions or housing might be counterproductive over the long term. But we have a lot of government programs, a lot of market pressures, and a lot of social pressures that are disincentives to the kind of agriculture that I think we'd like to see more of. And, for example, we local governments, there's a potential for doing the kinds of things that Charlottesville, Virginia implemented some years ago, where they assessed storm sewer fees based upon your square footage of impervious surfaces on your property in, in the city of Charlottesville. And this, there's a combination of things that make this work. Um, one is that there's a not, there's not a, a long distance between the city who's also building or upgrading the storm sewer infrastructure and its property owners, its landholders. In other words, it's not like a carbon trade where you have the signing ceremony in The Hague for some farmers in Kenya. It's a, it's a close relationship and the technology is, is pretty good for measuring impervious surfaces with aerial photography. And there is flexibility. You can get an allotment or an allowance for replace, replacing an asphalt driveway with porous paving stones, for example. There's not a lot of sensitivity to the variation in the infiltration rates of various lawns or landscaping. But anyway, the idea, I think, is, is sound that you have this close relationship. The benefits are, in fact, in fact measurable. And... You know, that's, that's simply not the case with, with so much of our atmospheric CO2 fixation. For example, carbon credits, there's no measurable benefit to the atmosphere when we, do, when we, when we increase soil carbon. And so that becomes a kind of a fantasy if you're trying to sell climate change reversal, for example. Does that mean that the thing we should be focusing on is water? as it is much more easy to measure, in this case, runoff or sewage runoffs, 
But of course, there are many other ways that soil carbon helps the soil, but also helps the water cycle. Is that something that, that would be an easier entry point, do you think? I think so, and but it, it could be a combination of things. And I, I think energy, transpiration, um, water are intrinsically better metrics than just soil carbon. We started measuring soil carbon because, in a sense, it's easier to measure than measuring soil water because it doesn't vary quite as much over time. And it doesn't depend on the pressure, if you will, the kilopascals of pressure that you measure soil water with. But water can be complex, but I think it's, I think it's a, an inherently good thing to try to focus metrics on because the benefits are local. The, the benefits can be measured. You know, we, uh, one of the big costs of, of soil degradation is the, co the externalized costs. For example, if a, if a farmer is plowing his fields up and down hill and has tremendous amounts of erosion in heavy rains. Some of the costs of that are typically borne by the local government, cleaning out ditches, uh, repairing culverts, all those kinds of things, and water treatment. There's there's lots of external lots of ways those costs are externalized. And I think that that's an incentive for continued erosion, if you will, and. Crop insurance subsidies are in that same category. We subsidize destructions, destruction of soil, and those policies could be presumably revoked or... They might be easier because they're local. Yes, yeah, and local governments can be more in innovative by nature than, than um, large governments. And distance is a, is a huge factor everywhere and but also there and what because i also want to be conscious of your time what would your advice definitely not investment advice but advice be to eager impact investors they've learned about soil they know they have to be patient they are but they are interested to to put their money to work and to to build soil what would be one or two things to watch out for or one or two things to, to look into further? Well, I would, I would go back to my short list, tenure and commitment, an organic growth and succession of management, and then the soil health principles and the latest, greatest regenerative practices. That would, that would be, again, my, my, my advice to impact investors, and it's, it's, not, a, it's not a simple step i guess but to know know the landowners and the land managers that you may be working with or if you're buying land you must be prepared at some level to manage all of these things yeah definitely requires a commitment yes and that by definition is long term and and what will you be working on uh, allowing obviously for for family matters um let's say this year what will be your main focus well, we're about to start w working more on a um, remote, some remote sensing stuff. Um, length of green season, I think, is a critical 
uh, metric that is that can be measured approximately with satellite observations that are now free. So that's a that's what I consider sort of a low hanging fruit. And so, what does was it? What does that mean? Length of green season is the amount of time that you have green growing plants that are in turn are, are feeding the soil microbes and have the potential to be building or growing soil. And you know, I think one of the one of the issues or the reasons that so much agriculture has been degrading soil is that it focuses on short season annual crops, often with nothing growing in between. So that you have either plowed bare soil or blowing dust or not much photosynthesis happening before the crop is planted and after it is harvested. So that's that's um, not a good situation for mycorrhizal fungi, for example. They depend on plants for for their life and for their ability to scavenge phosphorus and build soil structure. But the length of green season is, is so it's a, it's a critical thing and it, it can be measured with remote sensing satellites. Is that what they've used in that paper? I'm blanking if it's in Montana or Iowa to measure if it did if the not letting the land bare basically affected the climate the local climate right and that paper referenced some other studies but the according to some of the information that came out of there and i'm not exactly sure of the geography but in the northern great plains the acreage of summer fallow in other words bare ground for the entire growing season to in the hopes of storing enough moisture to raise a crop the following year. The acreage of summer fallow decreased from 77 million acres to about 20 million, mainly from 1985 to the present when the basically no-till became more widely practiced. In other words, direct seeding rather than plowing up everything in the, to prepare a seedbed. So, and in combination with an increase in, in summer cover, There, there's been a, a big change in the northern Midwest. You know, I'm talking about western South Dakota, a lot of eastern Montana. In the switching from a growing a crop of wheat every other year, for example, to growing crops continuous every year, with without disturbing the soil with deep plowing, in other words, minimizing tillage. And that appears to have affected the amount of convective precipitation, which has a cooling effect and also is reflected in temperatures. So the no-till movement, as far as we see the first data, and, and we have to be very careful there, obviously, had actually an effect on, of course, local temperature as on the land, because bare land compared to something growing on it is a huge difference. But actually, if you look at the full, in this case, watershed or ecosystem, it had an effect on much more than that. Yes. And similar similar reports have been coming out of other places um, where there's a lot of summer fallow in Oklahoma. Um, meteorologists have noticed a, a heating and drying effect. Well, that's huge news, or am, am I overestimating this? 
I mean, we, we've known it, but now we can see it. Yeah, and it's, people have been reporting these for actually centuries, but we have so many filters on what we know and what, we're, what we allow into our heads. And we have so many incentives, you know, vested interests, specialized knowledge that keep these things from coming in. So I think it's, it's very hard for us to see the opportunities in this sometimes. But the opportunity, yeah, these these are huge. But now with with free satellite data, you you maybe be able to see it at more places. Is that what you are what you're thinking? Yes, I think it's a better. I think the length of green season is a better question than you know how many weeds do we have or something like that. Um, and how is it mainly maybe changing over time, including large areas? Now the satellite data we have is is increasing in quality. It doesn't go all that far back. And so going forward, I think we'll have some very good data on change. And I think that's important for landowners, conservation districts, local governments to see what's possible and therefore to take responsibility. It's like learning a skill. You have to, you have to know what's, know that it's possible that it's practical and it's important to me and you'll learn it and in this case it's it's possible because we see it it's practical and it's important to me because it reduces the incredible heat waves we're having and and also brings a lot more moist to when the plants need it most yes our yields can be better our resilience to droughts can be much better it's going to be very interesting to figure out what is, which completely depends on, as, as I'm asking this question, I, I see it. it completely depends on the space, on the place, but what is, at what scale it starts to influence and what, so what, where do you need to get and which places are even more, almost like acupuncture, more important to make sure they're green constantly compared to other places in the watershed that maybe are of less importance because of their, their, their location, etc. Yes, and that's that's obviously local knowledge too. And just another example, I know of a farm in the Central Valley of California that in 2015-16 they they they're raising lots of tomatoes, tomatoes every year, tomatoes, processing tomatoes and fresh tomatoes. And in in the winter of 2015-16 they started planting a cover crop of mustard and a few other things in the winter, and it's a winter rainfall regime. And they got a good growth in the winter and their length of green season really increased. And they roll this cover crop down before they plant their, and they plant their tomatoes right into the residue. And that system has basically saved them about a third of their water use, which is huge in the Central Valley of California. And it's reduced their fertilizer use by half. And these are both huge economic gains. Yeah, then the next question is to ask is, how many do you need of their neighbors to to start, Not, I wouldn't say playing with the weather because it would be bad, but to influence it and to bring down these peaks that, that cause so much harm? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. No, no, that's what we're going to find out. That's the interesting part. Yeah. And so I would I guess I guess my advice to investors is the same that I'm giving to everyone else is ask better questions and engage more people in answering and asking them. 
I think that's that's great advice. I want to thank you so much for your time. And because we're on top of the hour as well, I, I would like to thank you for sharing and taking us a bit deeper into into the soil, water cycles and carbon cycle. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll step away from this and ask better questions. Okay, well, thanks, Con. Thank you so much, Peter. You just listened to a conversation with Peter Donovan. I hope you appreciate soil more than you did before and start asking better questions because of it. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, Share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.